thinking about sound money as not just money in and of itself, but as what should be classified as perhaps an enumerated right among the constitution, that sound money is just as equally important as your right to free speech and, and your right to, to, to assemble, for example. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. All right, welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Nadelstein. I'll be hosting our conversation today. I'm joined, as always, by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. And today we have a special guest, JP Cortez, Policy Director at Sound Money Defense League. JP, how are you doing today? Hey, Ben, thank you guys for having me on. I'm a, I'm a listener. It's great to be on with you guys. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So, JP, what is the Sound Money Defense League? Uh, what do you guys do? Tell us everything we need to know. Yeah, so it is a nonpartisan public policy group. Uh, it started back in 2016 when uh, Stefan Gleason, the president and owner of Money Metals Exchange, and I teamed up to start a sound money public policy advocacy group. Uh, we found that there are a lot of laws across, uh, across municipalities, across states, across um, the country that, uh, you know, introduce disincentives to getting into and out of gold and silver. And we decided to be a group to, to address some of these uh, really onerous, really draconian laws in some cases. Um, and so we, we uh, have since been writing, uh, writing legislation and introducing it across various states uh, and on the federal level to uh, remove the friction of going into and out of uh, the US dollar, of going into and out of gold and silver, uh, America's only constitutional money. I, th I think uh, just to, to chime in here a little bit, the concept of friction is a really good analogy because I think people kind of understand, you know, if you have a cinder block and it's on your driveway, which is asphalt and can be a bit rough, you think of how much, how hard it is to push that. And then if it wasn't one cinder block, but like a whole stack of cinder blocks, mm -hmm. um, it's just an enormous effort. Yes, you can do it. If you really, 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 really want to, <laughs> need to, you get out there and you prepare to sweat a little bit, or you can invite a couple of guys over and offer them some beers or something. You can kind of push those cinder blocks. Um, but, uh, you know, other than just a paraphrase from Denethor and Lord of the Rings at the utmost end of need, you're not really going to do that very often. It's, it's almost made intentionally difficult right? You're talking about, in the case of using gold and silver as money, you're talking about tra tracking a cost basis. Every time you, you go to a store, you spend any of these items, you've got to keep track of a gain or a loss. All of this is reported. It, it, it is unfeasible to use gold and silver today as money. And I don't think that's by accident. No, and of uh, course, gold is singled out for a higher capital gains tax rate than any other um, and, you know, investment or speculation. And so, yeah, with all that friction there, then gold just disappears into private orbs. Uh, it's hoarding, it's for storing wealth or um, hedge against the end of the financial system or speculation, whatever it is. It works really well for that. Not so good for actual circulation. And um, you know, if you eliminate the friction, instead of having a center block sitting on the driveway, imagine if you had it on a, um, you know, some sort of rolling cart. Yeah, or ice. Yeah, right, yeah, even better, right? So you have, uh, you have it on ice, and now you can just push it around with your little finger. 
Mm-hmm. And then, uh, therefore, you might be more inclined to push it, you know, twice a day. You get your car in, you get your car out. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not a big deal. You're not like going through that little mental, you know, gymnastics that you do. Yep. Is it worth it? Do I feel like doing it? Well, I should move it, but you're like, okay, and it just becomes second nature to do it. And the more that you take the friction out, the more that um, people can do the the trades that they want to do. Uh, the wealthier that we all don't become. So that, that idea of removing friction is probably one of the single most important, you know, much broader than just monetary policy, one of the single most important policy uh, uh, principles, guiding principles that, um, you know, any policymaker could have. How do we take friction out today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, so part of it, obviously, is the, the friction of going, you know, into and out of gold and silver and into and out of different types of money. So, uh, you know, other real difficulties in reintroducing gold and silver. For example, you know, if you ask any random person on the street what money is, they're going to, to describe this this green paper that, you know, has some writings on it. It's got an eagle on it. You know, most people have never seen physical gold, have no real understanding of why the things that have value actually have value. And so not only is it removing all the impediments and the dis- incentives so like a a learning process or rather an unlearning process that's going to be required to eventually move back to a sound money standard you know it's no coincidence that um car marks proposed 10 planks um and if you have these 10 planks then you know communism can take over the world and uh i I don't think it's arguable the two most important planks one to have a state-controlled central bank to control the money and the other is public schools so the kids are indoctrinated from the time they're you know, first in school, that money means pieces of paper with green ink on them. Yep. And I was gonna say, if you ask Google Images what money is, you get pages and pages and pages of individual dollar bills, people holding mm-hmm. fistfuls of them, um, no gold coins oh, yeah. you know, anywhere. So I, I'm sorry, we, we don't have to spend the entire time on this, but. I think that sort of beautifully highlights the, the importance of what Mises wrote in, I believe it was Theory of Money and Credit, when he said, uh, you know, a gold, a gold standard sound money effectively plays two roles. It, it is affirming in that the people's money is being chosen by the market, and it is negative in that it obstructs a government that otherwise has a propensity to meddle in questions of currency. And obviously that has giant implications from war to domestic programs to all sorts of uh, you know, uh, uncontrolled spending. And so like thinking about sound money as not just money in and of itself, but as what should be classified as perhaps an enumerated right among the constitution, that sound money is just as equally important as your right to free speech and, and your right to, to, to assemble, for example. Would have been very different had the founding fathers um, enumerated that, because of course yeah. from the founding they began to interfere and tinker with, with money, um, you know. And I, and I think it starts in 1790 with um, the creation of the Bank of the United States in 1792 with the Coinage Act, which mm-hmm. fixes the ratio of gold to silver, fixes mm-hmm. the price of silver in terms of gold, and uh, at that time it. Um, uh, slightly overvalued silver. So silver, of course, everybody's happy to turn their silver into the mint to be coined into coins. So in those days, you brought your metal to the mint and at no charge, they'd coin it for you. 
And um, because, the, because the government overvalued silver relative to the market value of it, a lot of silver came to the mint and the coinage was silver and gold being undervalued, Dresden's Lodge says it's gonna be driven out of circulation, which it was. 1834, they reversed that. Um, but then the other thing is they created this crony, they didn't have that, that word as anachronistic, not contemporaneous. They created this crony Bank of the United States, which was 20 or 25% um, owned by the government. And uh, the bank generously lent the government the funds it needed to buy the shares. I mean, this is classic cronyism. This yeah. is so corrupt. And uh, of course, it, it you know expands credit, does a whole bunch of other things, and um, you know thus begins. And of course, no one else could get a charter to you know. In those days, it required an act of Congress to open a bank. Like if you wanted to open a restaurant, you didn't get anybody's permission. You just opened a restaurant. You wanted to open a farm. You wanted to open a sawmill. You wanted to open a shipyard. You didn't get anybody's permission. You bought some land. You hired some people. Uh, and and away you went. But for a bank, you needed yeah. Congress, and Congress only authorized this one thing. So it's a government granted monopoly, and um, we never had a free market and money uh, in this country uh, ever. You know, going back to uh, to its founding, unfortunately. Uh, so if they had put that in the Constitution in 1789, instead of separation of money and state, um, and separation of school and state. I would add, um, boy, things might have turned out, uh, you know, differently. Yeah, they, I, they might have. I have to be honest. I'm not hopeful. The same people that wrote the Constitution are the same people that passed the Alien and Sedition Acts years later, uh, that essentially criminalized speech. So I, I am not necessarily hopeful that it would have made a enormous difference. Uh, but certainly in, in, in the just the process of of considering what money is i think that uh you know having that firm footing the understanding that uh you know money is not something that's arbitrarily assigned it's not something that uh you know is uh, that a, a government institution and now suddenly things without monetary properties or yeah things without monetary properties have them and it's just you know a simple uh, a flick of the wrist right so uh conjurers witches and wizards their their magic pales in comparison to that of a government's treasury um and so like that understanding i think is, is a big part of, of what we're up against here and now i was going to say that debate rages today except it's not much of a debate. Virtually everybody believes that um, it's government that abuse moneyness into um, you know, something that's non-monetary or otherwise be non-monetary. Mm -hmm. And people just sort of laugh at the idea of gold that uh, you know, gold doesn't have the backing of the government. That's how it comes out on CNBC sound bites. The so alleged monetary economists are the slightly more nuanced view, but uh, it's that idea that first there's government then there is the edict, mm. and that is what creates moneyness, um, which is so ass backwards. You know, you just wanna, you just wanna cry. <laughs> and that's what we've been seeing, right? So this has been the last couple of years have been a an exercise in magic monetary theory, and I think you know over and over the the Stephanie Keltons of the world are are having to to you know wrestle with this idea that wait, government does not predate money. There is little that we use more than, than money. It may be second to language. And so the idea that governments predate money, and so if only for a central planner, 
everything will be peachy keen is it 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 requires hubris uh it it lacks an economic understanding of the world um yeah i guess i my advice would be to go back to your mises <laughs> you know I, I just noticed yesterday and i tweeted about it that the subhead to her book on um as, as you put it magic yeah. uh, subhead to her book is something 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 quote the people's economy mm. i'm like you know, because I've been saying for a long time that this is basically socialism with a chic new label. And, um, you know, it hasn't been chic for a long time for the socialists to call it the people's state of whatever, you know, Ayn Rand famously and Atlas Shrugged, you know, all these various people states that were all collapsing, you know, the way Venezuela or, or Cuba did or, or is doing. And, um, you know, there she is openly, um, openly touting, you know, the people's economy. And, uh, and what does that mean? It means socialism. It means we're going to take everything you have, and then we're going to promise to give you everything you need, um, you know, provided you do as we say. And of course, we can't we can't deliver on our promises to give you everything you need because we can't deliver anything because ultimately socialism fails to be able to. You know, talk about Mises. His prediction in 1922 was prescient. Mm -hmm. The Union had to collapse, he said, because they can't they can't even calculate. You can't even put economic calculation. Yep. Now, what he and that's perceived was how, how how much subsidies the West and the United States would give the Soviets to extend the life of that thing that should have collapsed, yeah. um, you know, at or by or maybe slightly after World War II, and instead gave it another forty-year lease on life, forty-five years before it um, you know, finally was done in. But um, anyways, I, we're not here to talk about socialism today. <laughs> I mean, we can. I'm I'm open to it. <laughs> well, JP, so I, I see behind you, you've got your Sound Money Index. Can you tell us what is the Sound Money Index? Uh, I, I I think I know, but I want to know what states are on there, which ones are good, which ones are kind of bad on the Sound Money issue, and are there surprises or the ones you know maybe that we all think might be so hot and and aren't actually so great? And um, then I kind of want to get into gold bonds as well. So why don't we start there? Yeah, so the Sound Money Index is an index that the Sound Money Defense League has been publishing, I believe, since 2017. Um, and this is a scorecard. It's a ranking of all 50 states uh, using 12 different criteria to determine which states have the best pro and the most anti-sound money environments. In um, so we, we ranked most of the criteria that uh, our index covers is largely on the tax issue. Uh, sales tax on precious metals when you buy, uh, what are the levels of taxation relative to the average uh, rates of taxation across the country, and then again on the sell side when you go to sell the asset, uh, which states have removed capital gains taxes, uh, and then levels of taxation again. Um, but then of course there are other measures that that uh, the fold here. Some of those involve uh, state whether or not states have reaffirmed that gold and silver are indeed money legislatively, uh, whether states have uh, introduced legislation to establish an in-state depository to store uh, individuals and gold's holdings, or, or excuse me, and the state's holdings. Um, there are also uh, laws, for example, or excuse me, one of the other categories, for example, is the um, what we call the uh, dealer dealer harassment and restrictions um, in some states, for example, Ohio, which is a a notably red state, um, has laws, and these are primarily based on off, off of what are called secondhand dealer laws. But in Ohio, if your grandmother 
if if your grandmother gives your little cousin, uh, the 13-year-old little cousin, uh, $30 and tells them, hey, run down to the pawn shop, please pick up a silver U.S. Eagle, and they go down there and the pawn shop sells it to them, the pawn shop has now just committed two crimes. One, they allowed cash. In Ohio, uh, you you are not allowed to, no, no cash transactions, electronic only. There has to be a record. And number two, you're not allowed to buy precious metals if you're under 18. So, and these are, and I can't speak to whether or not anyone has been prosecuted for these things, but these are real laws that at least on paper are punishable with jail time, which is, it speaks to a bureaucracy, it speaks to uh, a, 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 you know, overreach of control. And it, again, speaks to making it more and more difficult for your everyday person to get into gold and silver if they wanted to. Um, and so those are some of the things. Gold clause contracts is another category that we've studied here. Um, and so uh, along all of these, these lists of categories, um, the one actually that uh, Keith and I and uh, Stefan and I have been over the last couple of years is, is the issue of gold bonds. And, and we've included that in uh, the, the most recent sound money index. I think for the last two years, it's been as part of the criteria. Um, and no states have done that quite yet, but these are, you know, issues that we're tracking. And ultimately, you know, there's a reason that uh, Wyoming and Texas and South Dakota are at the top and that uh, Vermont and New Jersey and Maine are at the bottom. And it's not necessarily partisan. It's not state is good on sound money. Blue state is bad on sound money. That's not that's not it at all. Each state has its own perceived, you know, financial needs. Uh, but across the board, um, you know, the, the states that are good on this issue have proactively taken steps to pass legislation like this. And the ones that are down at the bottom, uh, surprisingly, even um, Tennessee until recently was taxing sales or taxing sales of gold and silver. Uh, Florida, for example, uh, a red state has one of the most regressive laws that what are called threshold laws uh, in Florida. If you buy $500 worth of precious metals, your say your your transaction is tax free. If you buy under that $500, your sale is taxed. This is a, a, a regressive discriminatory policy that hurts those that are dollar cost investing, you know, the small, the small purchasers. These are laws that frankly don't make sense. And so these are some of the laws that, that we're tracking and, and we're work for a year to, to give people a holistic view on, on which states are the best. And having this, this resource, I think, has been really great. I've I have personally received emails and phone calls of people telling me that they're using, you know, this index and this information to determine where they're going to move their family or where they're going to open a business. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud of this index we've put together, and I think it's a it's a valuable resource. Yeah, I, I think it's really smart to, you know, sort of codify it, put it together, give people, you know, the way our culture works is people want to hear what's the number, what's the what's the score on the oh, yeah. sound money index for a given state. And I, th I think it's also really, really strategic to have some, um, I guess the concept to be headroom, like if you're giving an IQ test to all the kids, you definitely wanna have some questions that none of the kids are gonna get right. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, you have some resolution at the top of the scale. So you include some things that, you know, nobody's doing yet, but you're, you know, leaving room for it. Um, and then if you have any legislators or uh, enlightened governor that says, what can we do? And they look at it and they say, oh, wow, you know, we can do gold bonds mm -hmm. and we can do this and we can do that. Um, it gives them something to aspire to. Um, but it, it as. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like the highest score on the index this year is Wyoming with a 61 percent. 
right? There's still so much work to do, even among the good states. Yeah, I was going to say 61. That's kind of like, um, you know, class that's graded on a curve. <laughs> well, Keith, Keith, can you tell us what um, what is actually the benefits of having a gold bond for the state? You know, and the state, because it has, you know, different agencies can be on both sides of the trade. So for any saver or investor, especially for, for long term, uh, you know, we're not talking about parking your cash until tomorrow and you're going to spend it. Uh, but we're thinking about long term, like retirement horizons. How old is the average working age person? How many years before they even first, you know, quit working? And then how many years would they expect to live in retirement? For those kinds of timescales, um, the dollar is completely unpredictable. I mean, what is a dollar going to be worth in 40 years from now, 50 years from now? Nobody has any idea, but we all know. Less. We all know. We all yeah, know less. <laughs> It may be worth a lot less. It may even be worth zero. Um, and, uh, you know, so those that's your spectrum is ranging from a lot less to drastically less to zero, right? Those are your three choices. Um, so if you have a, a saving instrument, that's one thing to uh, own a piece of gold. Um, as Warren Buffett, Buffett famously, or in the gold community, infamously derides it's not productive, not procreative. You know, you buy a lump of metal, you stick it in your desk drawer, and 20 years later, it's still the same lump of metal. To which the answer is, sir, that's not a bug, that's a feature. Yeah. That is actually desired because if you bought a lot of dollar bills and put that in your desk drawer, they wouldn't be the same thing at all. Mm -hmm. um, they'd be something entirely different, as, as we just said. Um, but now imagine if instead of just a lump of metal, you have something that was actually productive and procreative and all the things that he said gold is not generating return, then um, you get a very different um, economic you know, outcome at the end. So for the, for the saver, for the investor, now for governments, they have, uh, some states have rainy day funds, they have pension funds, they have other longer term, um, you know, they may be doing providing reinsurance or, um, you know, super fund recovery, you know, if there's mining or industrial, uh, you know, pollutions or whatever that they set aside money that they may need to use sometime in the future, part, all that long-term money should be, you know, generating return. Um, on the issuer side, there's a very interesting um, dynamic. Um, and I proposed this in Nevada. I've had a couple of conversations with other states and a few sovereign governments around the world. And the idea is by issuing a, a gold bond, so number one, you have to have a gold income. This is not about having gold in the vault. To buy a house and then have a $500,000 mortgage, you don't have $500,000 in a safe in the basement of your house out of which you pay the mortgage. I mean, if you have 500,000 in cash sitting there, you'd probably just buy the house for cash. Um, you have a gold, you have, sorry, you have a dollar income, you have a salary, and you amortize the mortgage out of your salary. So in order for a government to issue a gold bond, it needs a gold income, which means it needs um, typically mining of other few other industries where um, their taxation effectively gives them a gold income. That's the, to qualify, that's what you need. If you do that, I propose you auction off a gold bond and you start very small for a lot of reasons. Um, and I propose that you, um, when you, when you conduct this auction, you don't, auction it for dollars. You're not trying to raise dollars. If that was your goal, you should just sell a conventional bond. 
nor do you auction them for gold. You're not trying to raise gold. Like the state's not trying to collect gold from the people. That's not the point either. The state should say in this auction, you have to submit how much outstanding state debt paper you're going to tender. So it's a redemption mechanism to pull its debt out of the market and replace it, pull its paper debt out of the market, replace it with gold, which does a couple of interesting things. First, it establishes a market exchange rate. I mean, there's an exchange rate between the dollar and gold. Everyone knows that and you can look it up every day on your favorite gold site. Um, but what's the exchange rate of gold versus dollars to be paid in 10 years from now? So if I gave you a choice, if I said, here's two bonds, you could pick either one. One of them is going to pay you um, 100 ounces of gold in 10 years. The other one's gonna pay you um, $185,000 in 10 years. Same debtor, same credit risk, same everything. Which would you pick? It's obvious. Yeah. So what is gonna happen is you're gonna get a discounting mechanism that the dollar uh, redeemable paper or dollar payable paper is gonna be trading at a discount to the gold redeemable paper. So this is a mechanism for states to um, reduce their debt at a discount. That is for every million dollars in, in debt, they might be able to replace that with, let's say $950,000 worth of mm -hmm. gold denominated debt. Um, that, I want to I want to stop on that for a second. So this is a way for them to reduce their debt, which isn't just you know uh, inflating away the debt or some kind of tricky scheme that we figured out. This is actually a a positive way to pay back and on a discount pay back the state's debt. Is that right? That's right. And by, by giving the market the choice and allowing the market to express a preference for the superior instrument, it's the market essentially saying, "Hey, well." We'll, we'll discount your, your paper because we want this new instrument. Um, and it's a market mechanism ultimately for return to the gold standard. It's not a decree. You, know, you can't have a government central planner um, who says we're gonna have a gold standard and that's gonna mean that the Fed is gonna somehow set uh, the right price of gold, whatever, whatever right price means. If the Fed is gonna somehow know and there's gonna be lobbying and cronyism of course, that would never happen in Washington. Uh, but the, the government's going to know the right price and the Fed is going to somehow set the right price. It never worked. Uh, but now you have a market mechanism that says, hey, you can redeem um, you know, paper bonds in, in exchange for gold bonds. And every day, somebody's making a decision, okay, well, how much of that, you know, how much of, how much of the gold bonds do I want and how much paper bonds am I willing to pay? And um, you get an exchange ratio. And my uh, theory is that over time, so initially, you might expect them to trade a par. Before the market's really gotten smart to this, you might expect a million dollars worth of debt, uh, you know, to go for, um, you know, what is it, 510 ounces of gold, or, you know, something, you know, the equivalent. But as people figure out the gold instrument is superior, I'd imagine that's going to be a rising discount, which means as the government is issuing more gold bonds, they can retire more and more debt for the same amount of gold uh, uh, payable that they have to commit to. And I think it's a mechanism that they can get out of debt. Should, shouldn't any state government actually care or want, <laughs> or want to do that? Yeah. In, in that unlikely scenario, this would be, <laughs> uh, this would be a, a nice mechanism for them to do so. Right. Well, JP, let, let's talk about that for a quick second. So what, what is the success 
uh, rate been like and what are the incentives uh, from the federal level down to the state level and then of course the kind of free market mechanism level so obviously we, we have a little bias here at monetary metals for the free market and and um, but but how has it been going uh, on the federal level uh, what, what is positive and what is negative there and then what about the state level so the federal level um, is not where we spend most of our time. We certainly have federal projects. We've been working closely with uh, Congressman Alex Mooney from Virginia to introduce several bills, uh, bills to audit America's gold reserves, bills to uh, remove capital gains on the federal level from uh, sales of gold and silver if there is a gain experienced. Uh, but the reality is that um, the, the federal space is... Uh, largely one of, of chest thumping and uh, gridlock. And so we have found uh, we have found that a more effective strategy is to target the states themselves. And that speaks to the, the movement that, that we've employed here where uh, you know uh, building urgency and telling people to be an active participant in their state legislature and just removing or rather reducing the ask, to virtually zero, you know, we'll provide the phone numbers, we'll provide the email addresses, we'll we'll you know provide uh, the articles and the information. But being an active, there is no replacement for for those phone calls and for those emails. So, in the case of, of you know, the DC switchboard is lighting up, you know, across a hundred different issues, a hundred different constituencies, and to them, it's all just noise. On a state level. If a state capital receives, you know, 20 phone calls, 20 emails on one given day on any one single issue, they're running around with, with their pants on fire saying, oh, my God, what, what is happening? Because state legislatures are not used to seeing that sort of grassroots pressure and that sort of organization. There was, a, I think, a famous politician in Illinois um, who said something to the effect of, you know, when I feel the heat, that's when I see the light. Which is to, to to say that, and that's largely what American politics is. You know, you the 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 people the the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and so if you want to get things done, you have to bother these people. You have to have their phones blow up and their inboxes ring. And we've had a number of experiences across states where either I received an upset phone call from a member of a legislative committee, upset because he was unable to work because uh, his phone calls and his emails kept him from being able to get anything done other than hear from our issue, hear from people on our issue. Um, in Alabama, we heard during I just hearings, have to interrupt and just say, that is such a terrible, terrible shame. And the world's smallest violin is <laughs> a sad compared to that particular. Absolutely. I, I, I apologize, sir, that you're having to hear from your constituents and do your job, but ostensibly you're representing these people. And so you have to hear from them. This is, this is entirely what you do. And so like in, in Arkansas, that happened and we were, we were not supposed to get a hearing that year. We, the bill was supposed to be dead. And, and because of the grassroots movement, they ended up scheduling, uh, you know, a, a un, planned hearing. Um, and then in Alabama and Tennessee, during during committee hearings, we heard, uh, you know, people not even on committees that, that we were a part of, just people that are part of the legislature saying things like, wow, half the state has contacted me over this piece of legislation. Or, you know, this is the most popular piece of legislation this year, which is probably a little tongue in cheek, but it speaks to the massive amount that, that they're hearing in a way that's uncommon. 
Uh, and that has been largely our strategy approaching these these legislative battles. And and frankly, it's been really, really effective. That's exciting to hear. So Keith, I, I have a question for you, which I've, I've wanted to know for a while. So uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that uh, Fed Powell had said that uh, Bitcoin and these kind of cryptocurrencies, they're just a speculation in the same way that gold is a speculation. So if that is the case, why do central banks hold gold? It seems kind of contradictory. Gold is just a speculative asset, just like you know any, any other asset like weed or stocks or anything like that. And yet central banks hold gold. So Keith, my question for you, why, why do central banks hold gold? And um, what, what, is this, what is the kind of uh, push that we can, we can have for these states to be like, listen, you already hold gold for some reason. Don't you think you should maybe earn interest on it or, or pass these gold bonds? You know, it's an interesting question. I think that, you know, so um, was it Ron Paul? I think who asked then Chairman Bernanke um, why the Fed has gold. Mm -hmm. It was one of those moments where what Bernanke said was both strictly true and disingenuous as hell. He said, well, basically historical legacy. <laughs> That's true, right? I mean, the Fed, so the United States is a bit different than most other countries. The gold, gold is actually owned by the treasury because the government confiscated, you know, I, th I think they, I don't, I don't know what, what proportion of the 8,000 tons that the Fed is allegedly holding came from the confiscation of 1933, but it's a pretty big percentage, I think. So the government confiscated it and then deposited it at the Fed because they didn't have anywhere else to put it. it was, most other countries, I think it's the central bank that actually owns the gold outright. Um, and, you know, of course, gold was the, um, you know, the money of the, of the monetary system, you know, certainly until 1933 and arguably really until 1971. After 19, you know, at the time of 1971, if you read what these guys were saying at the time, you know, Nixon said temporary. By the way, anybody who hasn't heard uh, the, the speech of Nixon talking about, uh, I've directed Secretary Connolly to temporarily suspend payments in gold and other reserve assets. Um, it's on YouTube, it's like a minute and a half or something like that. It's really short, incredibly mendacious. Um, and uh, it's interesting to watch, you know, what he said and whatever. Anyway, he said temporary. So at that time, everyone assumed like, okay, there's gonna be a resumption and nobody really got it, that temporary meant permanent. That was it. Um, and so it took, you know, several years for everybody to kind of realize that finally 1975, thanks in no small part, I think, to Jim Blanchard, who was a uh, paraplegic and showed up in a wheelchair. Um, I think it was, there was some congressional, there was some sort of press conference or something, and he kind of photobombed it, as I understand the story, and he's holding up a gold bar. And he's like, are you going to arrest a cripple? I dare you. And he was like, and he had a, uh, like a Goodyear blimp fly by and it was trailing something about legalized gold now. And anyways, they kind of legalized gold um, ownership. After that, I want to say it was 77 or 78 or 79, they undid, Congress undid um, Roosevelt's um, nullification of gold clauses. So you could have a gold clause after that. And, um, you know, they largely forgot about it. And the Fed is sitting there holding this gold. It kind of became pointless to them. That is, I don't think, and, and oh, at, over time, as, as, you know, the Fed chairman turned over, you, you, you didn't have people that 
understood. So Volcker, uh, who was Fed chair, um, you know, allegedly curing the inflation problem, we'll go into that today. Um, his doctoral dissertation was on real bills, uh, you know, in the gold standard at the time. But that guy would have gone, I don't know when he went to school, but it would have been 1940s or 1960s, I think. Um, you know, it was still relevant at that time. Greenspan, of course, famously wrote for Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, a book or a, an essay about gold that makes a pretty articulate case. And then you read what he was saying as Fed chairman mm -hmm. and then post-Fed chairman. It's like, you can't say he forgot it. You have to say that he evaded it. Yeah. He evaded more about gold than most people know today. Um, but he was the last guy that I like, grew up in the gold era or understood it or cared about it in the slightest. Everybody came after him, starting with Bernanke, has no you know, historical experience with it. They're younger, their whole careers have been in the fiat system. I, I, I truly think Bernanke, Yellen, Powell, I, I truly think they don't get gold. I've had a number of discussions personally with central bankers, not at that level, but one to two levels down. If you ask them about gold, at first kind of seemed surprised, like, why are you asking about that? It'd be like if you're asking a, a, an engineer who works for General Motors today about you know, the mechanism, of the steering, steering linkage on a horse and buggy from the 18th century, but why is that relevant? You know, we're talking about the, the 2022 Corvette. Why are you asking me about this? I, they don't get it. And um, to them, it's a historical legacy, but it's a political hot button, right? It would take an act of Congress for them to dump or sell whatever the gold. Nobody in Congress wants to touch that. There's no upside if you're a congressman to sell it or otherwise do something that's going to anger a big chunk of the population. So you just leave it there. Um, you know, in other countries, you know, there have been political movements. I know some of the folks in Germany that were involved in demanding to repatriate Germany's gold. And they turned it into a huge political issue. So the easiest thing to do if you're a central banker or your legislators, don't touch that third rail. Just leave it be. Now, of course, anyway, that's the true part. The disingenuous part is that gold is money. It still behaves as money today. Now, it's not a medium of exchange. People get caught up in defining money as a medium of exchange, which defines the moneyness out of gold. And yet gold still behaves as money in all respects other than being a medium of exchange. And even then, I would say in certain contexts, gold would be a very acceptable medium of exchange. Um, so I went to uh, uh, a school called the New Austrian School. Um, that was the, the idea and, and the brainchild and the creation of the Professor Fekete. And then at the end, um, when he awarded me the diploma, I handed him a one ounce gold coin. That was, well, obviously he's a gold guy, so you could dismiss it that way. But let me just say that gold coin was accepted without question. And that just <laughs> in his suit uh, very quickly. Um, you know, you don't have to force people to accept gold. So, um, you know, central banks own gold because that was the core monetary asset at one time and um, could be again. And after the irredeemable paper system fails, will be again. <clears throat> although hopefully not a centrally banked uh, version of a gold standard such as existed post-1913 or worse yet, post-World War I, uh, or even worse yet, post-World War II, when um, the whole world was supposed to treat the US dollar as if it were gold, and the US was supposed to treat the dollar um, as if it was redeemable, but not to, not to the people, only to foreign central banks. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but hopefully an actual circulating gold coin standard in which you know the, the need for a central bank is, is obviated. Keith, I, I have a question for you on that, I guess. So it sounds like, you know, obviously uh, the historic relic, and then um, it sounded like you were saying that central bankers largely don't know what to do with it or don't care about it. Um, and so now that, you know, there's obviously a completely separate tie between a Federal Reserve note and any sort of standard um, other than a PhD standard. So I think, though, I, I, and I could be wrong about this. I believe gold holdings across central banks have largely increased over the last 60 or 70 years. And I'm wondering if, if a central bank, if, if the, the common understanding is that you know, gold has no real value, it's not a real money, it, it's certainly not a medium of exchange, why do you think central over have stockpiled gold, America included, over the last several decades? Well, America has not, uh, the American government has not stockpiled any gold that I'm aware of. Um, there are certain, um, certain central banks um, that have bought some gold. They've also sold some. Um, is there a net increase? Yeah, I, th I think there probably is. Um, I, I think to those central bankers, if you ask them and they gave a non-political answer, which is almost impossible because they're politicians and you know, I think I think Greenspan actually talked about this—the need to learn to master Fed speak, and um, and not you know not speak in plain in plain language. Yeah. Um, I think if you ask them, they'd say, "Well, you know, it seems like a good investment. It's going to go up. You know, they have some reserves, and um, you know, gold seems to be a good bet, and and they have to mine their balance sheet. All right. So one of the things that the U.S. did to the world. At this insane treaty of Bretton Woods in 1944, you know the, the U.S. was the only standing power, really. The, all the other powers of the world were either completely destroyed to the point of unconditional surrender, or, you know, walking wounded at best. And the U.S. government dictated to the rest of the world, "This is how it's going to be, and you will like it." And um, everybody assumed that was to the U.S.'s advantage, because it was certainly to the rest of the world's disadvantage. Um, the guy who negotiated this on behalf of the US, one Harry Dexter White, was later proven to be mm -hmm. a tool working for the Soviet Union and trying to undermine the United States, um, which he was very, very successful in doing. Um, anyways, the, the point being that the, the balance sheets of all the other central banks, of course, denominated in local currency. Their assets being certainly in those days, but largely even you know, today, you know, US dollars and their liabilities being local currency. When the US dollar goes down relative to local currency, there goes the solvency of that central bank. Um, so, you know, they're looking for things that will counterbalance the dollar um, to make sure that they're solvent in nominal terms. You know, bad things happen to currencies when the central bank is insolvent. Um, and, and they all know that. But, you know, in terms of do they understand that it's money? Do they expect that it will be treated as money once again? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so because there's no mainstream thought that, that holds that or teaches that. So all of the academics, all of the economists, and most of the ones that would nominally be a free market persuasion. There's a lot of economists out there that can tell you exactly why and how a minimum wage law harms low-skilled workers and why and how you know, price fixing for gasoline, which is starting to be, unfortunately, a conversation again, 
is going to result in shortages and rent control and tariffs and on and on and on and regulation and, and so forth. But when it comes to the money issue, there was one that just tweeted yesterday and I retweeted him. And I'm, not, I'm not here to single him out, but basically said, um, you know, arguably the greatest good that came out of Roosevelt's administration was the bank holiday followed by the, um, you know, declaring gold to be, you know, uh, the dollar, you know, severing the, the uh, redeemability of the, of the dollar. I call them otherwise remarkers. Who said that? I'm sorry, you don't have to drop names. If yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to drop a name, but I, I, but this is a free marketer. Yeah, absolutely, libertarian wow. free marketer. Okay. When when this call ends, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Send um, me the tweet. So, um, yeah, I call them the otherwise free marketers, the people that posture. And Milton Friedman is one of them. And right, everyone thinks Milton Friedman is free to choose, free markets, blah 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 blah. On the money issue, they're absolutely, you know, almost in line with Marx. I mean, it's absolute state control, irredeemable currency, states, you know, central bank. Anyways, when, when this is the, the condition, when the entire spectrum of allowable thought in mainstream, uh, and this includes even libertarians, any libertarian that wants to be taken seriously in the mainstream has to move themselves into the Overton window. And the entire Overton window, this is what was it, Noam Komsky, who said um, the way to control uh, everything is to allow a vigorous debate, but restrict it to a very narrow spectrum of what is allowed to be debatable. And that's exactly what we have. When even, yeah. the, even the otherwise free marketers are absolutely for a central bank and a reasonable currency and inflationary policy. And they only, the only real debate is how to target the inflation. Do we target the inflation based on the CPI? Do we target it based on GDP, unemployment, the Taylor rule, you know, it, should it be more discretionary? And therefore, more you know, more political. Should it be more based on a rule, and therefore, arguably less political? That's the debate. When that's the debate, there's literally nobody yeah. in academia, let alone in a central bank, who thinks otherwise. On what basis would anybody even have the thought process that says gold should be money? That the mo that money exists independent of the state. Moneyness is not a, a, a diktat of the state crowning. You have moneyness because I said so by law. That, that there's nobody coming up in the universities unless they rebel against it, unless they say, this guy, this professor is an idiot. I'm going to read Mises or Rothbard or Hayek, whatever. Um, I was just reading an article published by the Compton Center, speaking of all this yesterday. Um, it's by Richard Evelyn, I believe. It was talking about the first Mont Pelerin Society meeting, 1947 in Switzerland, right after World War II, the ashes aren't even barely cold yet. And all of these, um, you know, people that were anti-fascist and anti-socialist got together. And I, I, I thought the article was really balanced because he basically said most of these people didn't necessarily think that to be a liberal meant, and liberal in those days meaning for liberty, necessarily meant, um, you know, libertarian or being for free markets in particular. And um, so uh, Mises actually stood up, pushed his chair back and said, you're all socialists and stalked out of the room. Uh, Friedman has always you know, quoted that as basically saying what a dogmatic idiot that Mises was. And I think go Mises. Yeah. Calling it as <laughs> oh yeah. That, but everyone else, you know, Friedman stayed there, Hayek stayed there mm -hmm. and Hayek was not necessarily what you'd call libertarian 
um, and everyone else in the room, and that was the post World War II order was built that way. So with all of this is economic, not the economic, excuse me, the academic intellectual backdrop, there's almost nobody who thinks that there's something wrong with having a central bank and irredeemable currency, central planning, inflation as a deliberate good. Not that, oh, inflation is an accident, inflation is a bug with the system. Inflation is a deliberate feature of the system in order to achieve stated policy objectives. It is done on purpose and proudly in, in, in daylight, not sneaking in back rooms, not like bribery or something like that. In that context, how in the world can anybody possibly have the thought who gets anywhere in the mainstream? Um, uh, you know, like that gold is money or anything like that. I, I joke that I was invited to a Manhattan Institute event where they um, sponsored the Shadow Open Market Committee. Uh, so these are a bunch of folks that are, they're monetarists and they, they criticize the Fed, but it's friendly criticism. Like, oh yeah, you know, you should have, you should have raised interest rates 25 basis points, uh, you know, six months ago. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I was joking to say, for some reason, they invited me into the room because they shouldn't have, because I didn't belong there. And I was <laughs> polite and courteous or whatever, but I was a disruptive force because I said the word gold, I think twice. Um, and I, I, I was the only guy in the room who didn't golf clap when um, Dick Fisher, who was the president of the Dallas Fed at the time, uh, gave a keynote at that event. And somebody asked him about the wealth effect. The economists have this term that's when you know, people feel richer when their stocks and houses are going up and they spend more. So it's not wealth, it's the wealth effect. The way, you know, cheese with <laughs> is not cheese. It's cheese, processed cheese food. Right. So anyway, so somebody asked him about the wealth effect and he says, oh, oh, well, let me tell you, the wealthy have been very effective. And, um, you know, everybody gave that little golf clap and I'm like, you son of a bitch. You think that what you've done is engineered a looting of the poor and the middle class to, to enrich yourselves and you're okay with that. Mm. And all the one percenters in the room, you know, uh, and, and so not everybody in the room is a one percenter there's a revolving door that goes academia, government, banks. And in academia, they get prestige, and government, they get power, and banks, they get money. And it's a revolving door that they can go through a couple of times in their career until they end up at their Fisher's level, uh, you know, rich and powerful and you know, famous and prestigious, right? And um, this is the mainstream thought. Gold yeah. plays no, they don't entertain it because gold, as you said earlier, so eloquently, I guess I didn't use this, um, is a check against that sort of blind grasping ambition. Right. Right. So they don't think about it. They don't care about it. They're, you know, and they think that it's, they think they won the battle, you know, 50 years ago, it was over. They don't realize it's coming back because their system is failing. And they don't realize their system is failing either. They just think, well, inflation is low. We have a new system. Oh, now inflation is running hot, we'll have to jack interest rates, whatever it is they think. They think they'll tinker with it and they'll, you know, they'll continue to. And and I think that's that's the hubris of the, the central planner, what is required to to believe that, you know, there's there's godlike uh foresight. And, you know, if if only we turn the knobs and and you know flip these levers, then then you know we we will be happy. Everything, everything will be well. And so the, I think like to your point and like there is, to me, I when I look at sound money from you know the perspective of economics, 
economics and denationalization of money and letting free markets decide what money is and and how that trickles down and and produces better results than a centrally planned money. Th those arguments are all, I think, very powerful. And, um, you know, obviously I, I believe them, I hold them to be true, but I think there's a morality that gets lost in this that I like to, to highlight that like, this is a, a stated policy of maker for poor people to live. Poor people that already can't afford housing and food and medicine and transportation are being priced out of life while Jen Psaki and Joe Biden are coming on stage every day, first telling us that there isn't inflation and then telling us that it'll be transitory and then telling us that inflation is actually good for the middle class and now finally landing on Putin's price hike. It, 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 is, it is criminal and it takes uh, the, the, the lack of thing as to how this affects you know, middle class and, and the poorest people among us is there's an inhumanity to it, which I think gets lost in all of these, you know, what can be more esoteric arguments about capital accumulation or, you know, uh, fractional reserve banking or, or things like that. Um, and I think highlighting highlighting that, that, that everyday people are, are finding it more and more difficult to keep up with, uh, you know, hyper-consumerism and a debt-laden economy. And I think uh, reiterating that and and having people understand that these these policies come with consequences. These aren't, you know, uh, these aren't sandboxes where quote unquote academic philosophers can can you know uh, run these little experiments without consequence. No, that's that's so so important that you know as long as as long as the debate is around either the particular whys and wherefores of central planning, use the Taylor rules or use nominal GDP, as long as the debate is about not only statistics, but I call it dancing on the head of a pin, whether you're supposed to measure M2 or M3 or some mm -hmm. other some other measure. And, oh, you know, this year was 7% and last year was 6.8%. Um, statistics are very antiseptic. The academic arguments are beyond even most of the people who think they understand it, follow it, let alone the mainstream people. But there's a very simple moral issue here, which is this is about stealing. This is about taking away your right, disenfranchising the saver by saying that you have to save in government debt. You know, saving so that I mean, MMT people tr trump this, try you know, promote this and trumpet is the word I'm looking for. They trumpet this that you know, savings is you know, government debt is savings, and all they've done is basically taken a particular perversion of the current failing system, treated as if it was a God-given. Uh, you know, natural law, mm -hmm. and then, you know, reverse sort of cause and effect and said, yeah, the government has to spend more money on whatever the latest leftist causes in order to, you know, help people save or something like that. All of this is just a, a thin veneer, a, 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 a facade over just theft, graft, right. grift, corruption, cronyism, all of the old, you know, bad old socialist things that the world should have already learned its, its lesson. And, and if you can paint it in moral terms, um, then, uh, you know, I, th I think people can start to see. JP and Keith, I want to end on this because it's a perfect segue. So JP, tell us about the Money Medals Scholarship and the Essay Contest, because I think this is just perfectly in line with what we're talking about right now. 
the the sound money scholarship is what it's called it's a it's a scholarship that is uh we do it every year uh where we have set aside 100 ounces of gold uh, i think in 2017 we set aside 100 ounces of gold to help students defray the ever-increasing costs of going to college and so we hold a scholarship contest every year it's an essay contest uh and we've had i'm i'm very pleased to say a blue ribbon panel of judges um, over the last couple of years. These are big names in free market economics and libertarianism and academics. Um, these are free free market minded, um, uh, you know, uh, judges, uh, important, uh, in influential judges that have come every year. And uh, we've gotten an incredible amount of support and excitement from students excited to have their work read by this incredible group of judges and have their work published uh, and need to win money. Um, and so this year, I'm, I'm proud to say, actually, uh, we have uh, our uh, entire panel set and ready to go. We'll be publishing that soon, but I am happy to announce, I'll break news on the air here, that uh, Dr. Keith Weiner will be joining us this year on our panel. Uh, I've heard from people already about how excited they are. They're going to get their their um, their essays in this year. And so uh, on moneymetals.com backslash scholarship, you'll find the, the essay. Uh, we ask you to keep it to 800 to 1200 words, give or take, it's a soft limit, but uh, just answer one of those questions and uh, we'll we'll go through the process. The judges will will receive the finalists and then we'll, we'll award a winner. I'm, I'm excited to participate and I look forward to doing some great essays. Yeah, thank yeah, you. So thank you for being a part of this. JP, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Can you tell us where people can find you, find your work, follow up, and, and what's the best way to get involved before we end here? Yeah, so the Sound Money Defense League is the name of the organization. You can find us at soundmoneydefense.org. Uh, the scholarship can be found on moneymetals.com backslash scholarship. And for more information on the Sound Money Index, you can find that at sound money, or excuse me, moneymetals.com backslash sound-money-index. Um, and again, my name is JP Cortez. You can find me on Twitter at jpcortez27. And uh, my email and stuff is on the site. So if anyone ever wants to reach out or, or you know, have a talk about this or, or, you know, work together to pass some legislation, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks so much, JP. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Keith. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.